Heavenly Father, Father, I thank you again for another day of life for each one of us, a day of privilege and opportunity for us to come to know you better and your will and purpose for our lives. And Lord, we know that our hearts are not inclined to good but into evil, but we thank you for the grace of Jesus that can transform even the most hardened heart. And Lord, we're here because of it as a testimony to that. And we just ask that today that our hearts would would continue to be softened to your voice, to the working of your Holy Spirit, that others may see Jesus in us. That's our prayer in his name and for his sake. Amen. Now I'm going to touch very briefly on some of the criticism. I'm going to start out by sharing something I call cult scare tactics, just this concept. You understand, and we talked about this the other day, that in Revelation 12, 17, when it presents this picture of the remnant, it talks about the, those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus, and we've talked about that before, the commandments of God and, and the gift of prophecy. But there's that other piece in there that says the dragon is enraged with the woman. And I think it is so important for us to understand that if the dragon, if the devil's enraged with somebody, what kind of publicity would you expect? I've had people talk to me who are new, come, newly come to the faith, and they say, I love what I'm hearing, I love what I'm learning, it's all biblical, but I've got some concerns. I got online and I read about this Ellen White, and people say you're a cult, and I say praise God, because that's one of the characteristics of the remnant church. Now it is, isn't it? The dragon's enraged with a woman. Look, Jesus was called Beelzebub. He cast out demons by the prince of demons. Isn't that true? And I want you to see something about the Apostle Paul in Acts 24. Acts chapter 24. You see, here's the thing, saints. The devil knows that if he can't attack the message, if he can't get anywhere with the message, he has to go against the messenger. If he can divert attention to the messenger, he diverts it away from the message because the message is powerful, and he knows that. Acts 24, verse 5. This is where the enemies of Paul are, are uh, arraigning him, and it says as they come before the governor Felix, verse 5, we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Do any of you know what word we would use today instead of sect? If you look in the New Living Translation, it calls him the compact. I'll read it. I've got it here in my notes. The New Living Translation says he is a ringleader of the cult known as the Nazarenes. Why the Nazarenes? Because Jesus was from Nazareth. So understand, they said, Paul, that Jesus was a cult leader. You're a member of his cult. Did that phase the Apostle Paul? No, look what he says in uh, verses 12 and, and onward. In verse 12, the Apostle says, and they, found, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. Point is, the accusations had no basis, but people still threw them out there. Why? Because if they could discredit Paul and divert attention to the messenger, people would maybe not get the message. You follow that? And folks, the devil still uses that tactic. Uh, you find throughout the ministry of Paul that, that you, you, when he went to different places, you read in the book of Acts, that, that his enemies would follow him around and then stir up the crowds against him. 
Let's not give in to the devil's scare tactics. People are going to say what they will. Our question needs to be, are we standing on Bible truth? And if we are, we're where we need to be. Now, there are, have been multiple attacks in this context. There have been multiple attacks against the ministry of Ellen White. They are going to continue. One of the, one of the main attacks has been this, this whole plagiarism issue. So I'm going to spend the bulk of our time talking about that today. But I'm going to share a little bit here. Um, about the type of thing you find. This one here is just especially interesting to me that I'm about to share because, uh, uh, well, I'll explain it. Uh, there are people who talk about the suppressed writings of Ellen White. Now, I'm going to show you. I've got this on the screen. I don't know how much you can read on the screen. You can't really read that really well. But that white, and I've, I've copied this. I have a digital copy, but I found this on the Internet, and I printed it off, and I printed it off, and... This is what that little box on the inset says. Now, this is an anti-Adventist, anti-Ellen White website. And the little box on the inset says, Ever wonder why you could never buy a copy of a word to the little flock in in an Adventist bookstore for 150 years? Ever wonder why you couldn't find this book? And and the implication of the whole thing is that the Adventists have this book, but you can't find it anymore. It's hidden. It's secret, and they don't want you to know about it. And when I first read this, it was funny to me because, bear with us, we're having just a little bit, I don't know what's going on. Here, let me do this. Let's plug this into a different thing here and see if that helps us. All right. Well, it's just, hopefully that, that, that will work. Okay, so this here, you see this? It's a word to the little flock. You know what that is? That's a scan of my own personal copy that I bought in a Seventh-day Adventist ABC. And I'm not nearly 150 yet. Okay? And so here's this thing, and it says, have you ever wondered why? Now, the wording already is to get people who read it. And here's the, oh, this is the thing that frustrates me about this Internet stuff, is most people wouldn't know where to go to disprove it. And it just has that flavor like the serpent at the tree. Hmm, they're holding something out. Wow, they're hiding something. This so I found this in my book collection in my library. And do you guys remember the, the, the lady who had a grilled cheese sandwich and she thought the image of Mary was on it? Do you remember this in the news years ago? They actually sold that, that grilled cheese sandwich with a bite taken out of it for $28,000 on eBay. Some casino in Las Vegas bought it. So I thought I had hit a gold mine, right? You've never found this book in an ABC in 150 years, and lo and behold, I have a copy. That I found it in an ABC. I'm going to be rich. Ah, oh, how disappointing it was to realize that we never suppressed this book. But let's just say you couldn't buy it in an ABC. How about this? It's available in digital format on the Ellen White, well, I call it the CD, but now it's not the CD, the app, whatever, Right? It's there, and guess what we charge for it? Nothing. Here's the other thing that really gets me about these kind of things. If you go to the screen, if you guys can put that up, notice suppressed writings of Ellen White, and there's a list. If they're suppressed, how did you get the list? Right? All, because they're all available. Anyway, this, this is the nature of the kinds of things that you find sometimes on the internet, and, and here's one of, the, one of the things, somebody asked me about this the other day. One of the things they say, and this particular one, um, 
article was going into the reason the word to the little flock was suppressed was because it talks about the shut door, and the shut door was something Ellen White used to teach by, you know, God gave her a vision, and so she taught that, that the door of probation was shut for the Gentiles, and then he, she had another vision and fixed it. I don't know if you've ever heard that. It's not true. There's a whole chapter on the shut door in uh, that book, Understanding Ellen White, which is, again, free on the app, and it's also at the ABC. But here's the thing with the shut door. When the, the time passed in 1844, the Advent believers thought that the door of mercy was shut to the Gentiles. Ellen White was included in that. But it was not because she had a vision. The reality is the first, her first vision, which came after that time, clarified the truth of the issue on the shut door. So far from what the critics say, oh, she had a vision and, and God gave her this shut door idea and then she changed it. No, God corrected it with the vision. Now, there are people who have the mindset that, well, if she's a prophet, she should have never needed to be corrected. Are you serious? Prophets are sinners like the rest of us. And case in point, you go to the book of Acts. You look at Peter. You look at that vision God gave him of the sheet in Acts chapter 10. Why did he give him that vision? Because he thought the door of mercy was shut to the Gentile world, did he not? And God said, no, the gospel goes to the Gentiles. And he corrected Peter with a vision just like he corrected Ellen White with a vision. I mean, I'm perfectly comfortable with that. As I said, I'm, if, if there's bi biblical precedent for what I believe, that's what I'm looking for. So I hope that that makes sense. But you get this nature of stuff, half-quoted things. And, 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 but I want to get into the, the plagiarism, specifically the, the idea of plagiarism. And I did put it up here. I didn't put the personal references. But I received a letter. This has been some time ago. You see this in 2010. <clears throat> I've taught on the spirit of prophecy a number of times. It's one of the things that... that, that You'll hear me say this a lot, and I apologize. In fact, Elder Nelson, had, uh, who's working AV, has said, you know, you waste so much time saying those things, but I keep saying, well, for sake of time. <laughs> uh, but usually this is a course that I've taught in 18, six, between 16 and 20 hours. And so it's, yeah, there's just so much more that I'd love to go into. Um, so I can't get into all the detail, but I've taught on the subject in a lot of places. And I had a gentleman who saw something I did on 3ABN. He wrote this letter, and I don't know if you can read what it says, but he had two questions. He said, I do believe in this gift. However, there are a couple problems which have disturbed me. The first one, he says, that Sister White borrowed some of her writings and not always gave credit to the original author has been explained, and I can accept the reasoning. There is only one exception. Apparently, the bulk of her book, The Acts of the Apostles, has been copied from another book with that or a similar title written by some other author. You may be acquainted with his name and with this issue. Is there a good explanation? There is. I'm going to get to that. His second question. About a year ago, an article in one of our Adventist papers appeared claiming that Sister White liked shrimp and oysters. I have not seen or read the article myself. This happened during her latter days, da 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 and he wanted an explanation. Well, the shrimp and oysters, that can't... <laughs> That came, there was a story, Ellen White had a literary assistant named Fanny Bolton. Has anybody ever heard of Fanny Bolton? She wrote a hymn in our, not I but Christ, in our hymnal. Fanny Bolton wrote, well, Fanny Bolton had worked with Ellen White for a period of time. And uh, I, I don't have time to give you the whole breakdown, but Fanny Bolton had, at one point, began to claim that, that she not only edited, she wrote a lot of the stuff that, that was Ellen White's, which was not true. And in later years, and to this very day, Critics will say that Fanny Bolton is the one who wrote Steps to Christ. 
there's a major problem with that, and that is that most of the content that was written in Steps to Christ was compiled from Ellen White's earlier writings before she ever knew Fanny Bolton, or Fanny Bolton know her. Further than that, one of the critics says, well, I have no reason to doubt that Fanny Bolton, you know, I've heard that she wrote Steps to Christ, not Ellen White, I have no reason to doubt that. Well, here's some reasons. Fanny Bolton was in and out of the Kalamazoo Mental Hospital about three times. And she had major issues with trying to take other people credit for other people's stuff. So I, I'm just, this is the kind of stuff that you find in these half-truths. So the shrimp and oysters, that was a Fanny Bolton story that she told about Ellen White. She said she saw her in a restaurant somewhere and she told people, no, 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 she told people Elder G.B. Starr had seen Ellen White in a restaurant eating shrimp and oysters. And so somebody asked G.B. Starr about it and he said, what? <laughs> you know, I've never, I've never seen anything of the kind. Now Ellen White did eat oysters for a period of time, there was a time in our church where it was unclean. They're that like ducks. I don't know where you are with ducks. You know, do you eat duck? Is it clean or is it unclean? And most, for the most part, I think we think it's unclean, but I'm just saying that there were certain things, and there was a time when oysters was in that category. Oh, the things we throw Ellen White under the bus for. Anyway, <clears throat> but that first one now, the plagiarism one, you know, that's a big question people have. What about Ellen White's borrowings? We're going to talk about that. That's what we're going to move into with the bulk of the rest of our time here. Plagiarism, according to the dictionary, I put the dictionary definition up here, is the practice of taking someone else's work or ideas and passing them off as one's own. Now, I want to add to that, that a person who plagiarizes, let me, oh no, I was going to ask you if you'd ever plagiarized, and I'm not going to do that. Um, and I won't implicate myself. You know, sometimes in school you might be tempted to do it. Plagiarism is when you take something else, but you're passing it off to make it look like you wrote it. And one of the main reasons for doing that is because you don't write well and somebody else does. That's, that's why a person plagiarizes. A person who can write well doesn't typically have a reason to plagiarize. And plagiarizing, uh, it actually, the word comes from, the, lit, the word plagiarize comes from a word that, that uh, um, the root of it means kidnapper. It's, it's obviously, it's something intentionally devious. Now, I'm saying that to say there is a distinction in the literary world. There's another thing called literary Borrowing. Now, I know that that sound, initially, somebody, oh, that's semantics. That's cute. Literary borrowing. That's like, a, that's like you're a trash collector or a sanitation engineer, right? Literary borrowing. But it is very distinctly different. The difference is this. Their authors have historically taken from other authors without using credit. And in Ellen White's day, this was a common practice. Material was not copyrighted by and large, and it was not with any intent to deceive. It was just, hey, I'll share, that was a good thing you wrote, I'm going to use some of that, I'm going to use some of yours, and that's just how it was. And you're going to find that that, that that is something that gets clarified when we talk about plagiarism, but then the critics will say, yeah, but God knew that one day it would be a problem, and so he should have let Ellen White know. That she shouldn't have borrowed. Well, so we're going to get into that a little bit. But I want you to understand the difference between what we would call plagiarism and what we would call literary borrowing. Now, the other thing that I think is more important that you understand is, and listen to me carefully, authors of the Bible literary borrowed. I don't know how else to say that. By the, by the common definition that people charge Ellen White with and say she plagiarized, if she did, so did the authors of the Bible. Cases in point. Let's look at a couple things here. Let's go to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter Ecclesiastes, 
chapter 12. I'm just giving you a couple examples here. Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. We're going to chapter 12, which is the last chapter of the book, and I want you to note carefully what Solomon says here. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 9. And moreover, because the preacher, the preacher is a word he uses for himself, a name he uses for himself throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And incidentally, what I'm about to tell you, scholars, biblical scholars are agreed on this. I'm not coming up with this. It's not a convenient Adventist interpretation. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, speaking of himself, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and what? Sought out. What does that mean? Looked for in other places. Sought out and set in order many Proverbs. Do you know what Solomon just told us? That he did not author the book of Proverbs. That he organized the book of Proverbs. Are you, are you seeing that? Now, I didn't make it up. I'm not reading it out of the Adventist interpretation. He says that the wise man, verse 10, the preacher sought to find acceptable words, and what was written was upright words of truth. So Solomon tells us that Proverbs, that's a collection from many different authors that he compiled in the book called Proverbs. Right here in the Bible, Bible author, inspired author. What do you know about that? Let's go to the New Testament, Gospel of Luke. Now, you know, you know Jesus' disciples, Matthew and Mark and John, and you remember when Luke was traveling around with them, right? Oh, wait a minute. Luke didn't travel around with Jesus and the disciples, did he? So where's his first-hand account? Well, Luke tells us. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke chapter 1. Let's just start there in the first verse. Luke chapter 1, verse 1 says, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to what? Set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had a perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Now here again, just like Solomon, he says that he set about to set things in order. And again, this is not an Adventist interpretation. Biblical scholars are agreed on this, that what Luke is telling us is because it wasn't a first-hand account for him, he took the story from other places and made it his. Are you following that? So listen, folks. I mean, go ahead. Go ahead, accuse me of doing something biblical. Call me, call me, call me a, 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 say I'm following a false whatever because I'm doing something biblical. Call Ellen White a false prophet because she did what the Bible writers did. That makes no sense, but that's what happens. So right there we have a biblical precedent. Now I want you to notice this statement from the pen of Ellen White. She's not talking about herself or borrowing at this point. So you, it's not, this is not a defense. But in Review and Herald, January 7, 1890, she says, Christ is the author of what? All truth. Every brilliant conception, every thought of wisdom, every capacity and talent of men is the what? This is just Christians, right? Right? It's Christian. Because people are non-believers, that wouldn't be the case, would it? 
Are you guys here this morning? Yes, it would be the case because there is no human being who comes up with anything wise. This is the point is that all wisdom, and I love what it says in the book Steps to Christ, every right impulse comes from Christ. There's no such thing as a right impulse. The Spirit of God is working with people that don't even realize it. So we can't, well, you know, I'm usually a good person because I don't know. If you do anything good, it comes from Christ. That's why Paul says there's nothing good in me that dwells. He understood the good came from the Lord. Ellen White says, He's the author, Christ is the author of all truth. Every brilliant conception, every thought of wisdom, every capacity and talent of men is the gift of Christ. He borrowed no new ideas from humanity, for he originated all. Now let me just ask, maybe it's a silly question. If all truth originates with Jesus, does he have to ask to use it? Now, don't misunderstand or read me here. Don't misread me. Because I'm not going to say, so, you know, if Ellen wants to do something illegal, if Jesus told her to, go ahead. I'm not talking about that. We don't believe, and I think it'll be very clear here, that what Ellen White did, and she did borrow. I probably should have stated that up front. She did borrow from other authors. This creates a problem for some Seventh-day Adventists, especially those who believe in what we talked about the other day, verbal inspiration. Because if God dictated every word, why do you have to borrow from somebody else? But with thought inspiration, there was a reason that she would borrow from other authors. Willie White shares this, her son W.C. White shares this in a letter to L.E. Froome. He says of his mother, she always felt most keenly the results of her lack of school education. She admired the language in which other writers had presented to their readers the scenes which God had presented to her, to her in vision. There are some things, if you read in Ellen White's writings, there are some writings that have not been as thoroughly edited, and she wasn't as good with her grammar. Her grammar was not as smooth as what you find in Desire of Ages. She had literary assistance. Oh, we got critics. We got people in the church like, oh, she had literary assistance. How can an inspired prophet need literary assistance? Read your Bibles. Paul had literary assistance. Peter had literary assistance. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, all of this is biblical. Let me ask you about the spiritual gifts. How many gifts are there in the church? A lot. Can you say a lot? Because we know there's a lot, right? There's not just one gift. Well, does it make more biblical sense that God would only employ one gift or several together? He gave all the gifts to give each man, as the Bible says, to the Holy Spirit individually as he wills. And he brings all those together like the parts of the body. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And so it was in the ministry of Paul. So it was in the ministry of Peter. Everybody did their different part. And in Ellen White's ministry, she had assistants that helped in the editing of her work, not the writing of it. One of her most loved editors, Marion Davis, says, look, the best editor can't do anything if there's nothing to start with. <laughs> Ellen White wrote the material. <clears throat> these things, like literary assistants, those, these things cause concern for, for some people, I think primarily because we don't understand how the Bible was written. I said the other day we wouldn't have near as many questions about Ellen White if we knew what the Bible said about prophets. Her son W.C. White says she, had, she admired the language in which other writers had presented to their readers the scenes which God had presented to her in vision. And she found it both a pleasure and a convenience and an economy of time to use their language fully or in part in representing those things which she knew through revelation and which she passed on to her readers or wish to pass on to her readers. 
So he gives a little explanation as the reason sometimes she would take the statements of, of others. Now, we're gonna, um, if, you, if you've heard any of this debate, even in Dr. Knight's book, from our own people, sometimes you get the idea that, wow, she must have, oh yeah, it was a lot of stuff. I mean, she borrowed most of what she wrote. She did not author. That's the, the sense you get. It's not the reality, and I'm going to share with you that in a minute. Now, one of those areas we know that she borrowed from significantly, at least in the book Great Controversy, was the area of historical fact. And she herself says that in the beginning of the book The Great Controversy. And she tells us all about it. I'm going to go there in a minute. In fact, a lot of discussion came up on this when the great controversy sold so fast and so well that the original printing plates wore out and they had to reprint sooner than they thought. The original printing of it was in 1888. They needed to reprint in 1911. And so in preparation for that reprinting, they went through the book and there were things that were changed and they updated some historical facts that they found that were not accurate. Because the historian that she cited, there were multiple versions of what this, that, or the other. At any rate... That unsettled some people that, wow, you're going to change some of these things, these historical facts. Now, she explains in the opening of the new, the 1911, and that's still the latest edition that we have, a great controversy. She says, in some cases where a historian has so grouped together events as to afford in brief a comprehensive view of the subject or has summarized details in a convenient manner, his words have been quoted. She's telling the reader this right up front. But in some instances, no specific credit has been given since quotations are not given for the purpose of citing that writer as authority, but because his statement affords a ready and forcible presentation of the subject. So Ellen White would employ historical... Uh, inf- well, it was other, there was other information too. I'm just, that was one of the things she up front said. Look, there's things I've cited in my book. Some of it has quotation marks. Some of it doesn't. We've taken from other historical authors, that was a practice that was common in her day. Nobody in her day ever sued her for it. Nobody in her day ever had an issue with it. Now the problem, I can understand the problem if a person has an understanding of inspiration that says inspiration is verbal, where they'd have question. Or, sometimes the question is ethical. Why would a prophet of God need, need to borrow? But when you understand that, I don't know how many of you have ever written articles here, I didn't come, all, half the stuff I'm using here, I've looked in books and I'm sharing things and facts and figures. That's sometimes how you put things together. Bible writers did that same thing. Now the question is, well, if that's the case, if I take and, and quote somebody who's uninspired, then suddenly what I'm saying is uninspired. Like if I'm an inspired prophet, in the case of Ellen White, Ellen White's an inspired prophet, well, let's go back to, uh, let's go back to Solomon. Solomon's an inspired prophet of God, but if Solomon takes a statement from somebody else and puts it in the Proverbs, they suddenly become uninspired, right? Wrong. That statement just became inspired. You understand what I'm saying? We're going back to Christ being the originator of truth. If somebody says something that's true, and the Bible writer quotes it, it's still true. And the originator, incidentally, was Jesus. Are you following that? It doesn't take away from the inspiration. This idea of verbal inspiration, citing historical sources, this became a big, a big discussion, but not the discussion, listen carefully, 
in the 1919 Bible Conference. Have you ever heard of the 1919 Bible Conference? This is like the high, this is the best thing since sliced bread now for, for Adventists on the edge. It's like Area 51 for the Adventists. So they began to, to, to discuss this issue of inspiration. And there were people in the Adventist church. There are people today even who believe that Ellen White's and the authors of Scripture were verbally inspired, that that's how it has to be, which time doesn't permit. But, uh, so this became part of the discussion in 1919. Well, what happens in many places, now Knight does it in his book, there's other books, they come out in 1919, and they, and, they, and they give the impression that the big discussion was about Ellen White and her inspiration, and at one point in the meeting, A.G. Daniels said we'd be better off maybe to just take all this discussion because they were taking minutes of it, and lock it up and put it in a vault. Right? Area 51. It's all secret. And that's exactly what they ended up doing. And so when they dug that out sometime in the, I think it was in the 50s, I, I, I don't know, I'd have to look at it again. Well, this became the, oh, it was the secret thing that nobody wanted anybody to know. The reality is, and here's what we hear, the reality is, our leaders knew that the deal with Ellen White. They knew it. They knew that her inspiration wasn't what we think it is and that, and they just kind of, but they didn't, and they locked it up in a vault. But now we know it's been exposed. It's come out. So I think Herbert Douglas' statement on the whole 1919 issue is helpful here. He does a whole chapter on it in his book, but he says, it is more than interesting that the president's, that was A.G. Daniels at the time, suggestion, which was eventually followed, was that suggestion to lock everything in a vault, was made subsequent to a spirited discussion regarding such subjects as the Eastern question in the Aryan Trinity controversy. Unfortunately, some have used Daniel's statements to include the discussion on the authority and inspiration of Ellen White, which did take place, a discussion that took place on July 30 and August 1, two weeks after Daniel's suggestion to lock up the manuscript. So they weren't trying to lock up this thing on Ellen White. Anyway, more could be said on that. I just want you to understand that this is, this is, this is, things get slanted. And that slant ends up being confusing because a lot of Seventh-day Adventist members wouldn't know, well, where do I go to find out different? Why, is this one of our historians? It ought to, it's probably true, isn't it? Well, I wouldn't assume anything anymore. So I want to talk about some of the areas Ellen White borrowed in from different writers and some of the things that are said. In Knight's book, he shares about a study by Don McMahon, a path-breaking study where McMahon divided Ellen White's counsels on health into what he called the what's and the why's. What the counsel was and then the reason for it. Now notice, this is what he says in his book. He found that her remarkable... He's speaking of McMahon's study. Knight is. He found her remarkably accurate on the specific council, like, oh, her health councils are accurate, but only comparable with her who? Contemporaries in the reason for that council. Now, folks, this is something that has circulated and will continue, I'm sure, until the Lord comes, that Ellen White's health council, a lot of it, she just copied from her contemporaries who taught on health and who knew more about it than she did, or whatever the case, and the wrong stuff she copied and the right stuff she copied, and she just copied it. This is what this is saying. It was Her reasoning was comparable to her contemporaries because she just copied her contemporaries. Robert Olson, it says, has ra had, had raised that very possibility as early as 1990. He adds that McMahon concluded that, quote, only 
Uh, 66% of Ellen G. White's health and medical statements in her book, Ministry of Healing, would be deemed accurate by modern standards. Now, the explanation is, hey, it's just like historical facts. She borrowed it from other people, can't be responsible for it. Folks, I'm just telling you that that's not the case. It is true that there have been things like the rooms in the Paradise Valley Sanitarium. I shared that. Of incidentals that may have been either worded by herself or from somebody else and she could have misspoke. I mean, I don't know. I'm not there to ask her about every last thing. There, there are and have been extensive studies. The books that I shared with you are books that treat these subjects much more, in much more detail. But I want to share with you a statement made by a doctor, the professor of nutrition at Cornell University in the 1950s. His name was Dr. Clive McKay. And McKay had an Adventist girl who was a student of his at the university who shared with him the book, Councils on Diet and Foods. When he read it and understood that the author, Ellen White, lived in the 1800s and early 1900s, he was blown away because of the accuracy of the information. And when our leaders met with McKay, and he wanted to know how she got the information, they, didn't, they felt uncomfortable saying, well, she's a prophet, right? This is not a church member and what have you. So they said, well, she took a lot of her information. This is probably where it started. Um, you know, she, she listened and studied health and took a lot of information from, 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 other, from her contemporaries. And this is what McKay said to them. He said, how did she know what to use and what not to use? Because she only copied the true stuff. Now, this is what McKay says in an article the Review asked him to write some time back. He says, among the thousands of historical acquaintances in my files, one of the most worthwhile is Ellen G. White. As near as one can judge by the evidence of modern nutritional science, her extensive writings on the subject of nutrition and health in general are correct in their conclusions. This is doubly remarkable. Not only was most of her writing done at a time when a bewildering array of new health views, good and bad, were being promoted, but the modern science of nutrition, which helps us to check on views and theories, had not yet been born even more singular, Mrs. White had no technical training in nutrition or in any subdivision of science that deals with health. He's just saying, <clears throat> I think in that discussion, after that little bit of, you know, how did she know, they said, well, we believe she had the gift of inspiration, and now it made sense. McKay said, I don't know how else, how else she could have done it. So this idea she borrowed from her contemporaries, it doesn't wash, folks. Now, about, what about the, the extent of the amount of writing she borrowed. One prominent critic, I think it was Walter Ray in the 1980s, alleged that 80 to 90% of her writings, and there are those today who still, this voluminous amount of her writings, were borrowed. Tim Poyer, in this book, Understanding Ellen White, in his chapter on the plagiarism issue, says Ellen White's copying is less than alleged by critics. Estimates that 80 or 90% of her material is copied from other authors are wildly exaggerated and unsupported by the facts. Currently documented parallels put a percentage estimate in the low single digits when compared to her total literary output. A study was done which is shared in Herbert Douglas's Messenger of the Lord. Here's some examples. Now, <clears throat> Great Controversy has a whole lot of historical information and quotes from history. Some of those are cited, and so here you have it. In quotes in Great Controversy, you have 15% of material that was not written by Ellen White, but it is in quotes. 
uncredited or unquoted material, 5% in Great Controversy. And then on the scale, the next book is the sketches from the life of Paul. Now, this is where that gentleman was in his letter was asking. He's like, didn't she borrow some of that book, a lot of that book? There are critics who will say, yeah, the majority of it, 80% or more, was taken from Coney Bear and Halson's Life of Paul. Well, the figure says 12%, but here's a little fact for you. Coney Bear and Halson's book was a popular book in print in Ellen White's day, and she recommended her readers to get a copy. Now, let me just tell you, if you ever decide to be a plagiarist, the last thing you want to do is recommend the book you're plagiarizing from, especially if it's a bestseller, okay? <laughs> I mean, and, and we'll get it. So, Life of Paul, and then you go down from there, if we could have that back on the screen. Steps to Christ, 6%. Acts of the Apostles, you know, I'm not giving the point O's. 3%. Faith and works below 3%. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, 2.82. Messages, you, you see there, going down to Prophets and Kings, most of them, as Poyer said, are in the low single digits. Ellen White authored her books. I like what uh, then in the 1980s conference president Neil Wilson said, originality is not a test of inspiration. Truth is a test of inspiration. Tim Poyer says, unlike modern allegations of plagiarism against a novelist or journalist, Ellen White's use of sources is inextricably linked to questions about the nature of inspiration and assumptions about how inspired writers ought to write. We kind of touched on that. Verbal idea of inspiration, well, I'll suddenly have a conflict. Or assumptions of how a writer's supposed to write if they're inspired. The, the reality is that many of the critics say, well, she shouldn't have written that way. Who made you judge of how to write? Isn't God the one that tells the prophet how to do it? I mean, go, and then you go back to Solomon, and then you go back to Luke, and how many others? And so this is, Poyer's just making that observation. And I found this next statement I'm going to share with you interesting. And I've got to move kind of quickly here. Uh, this was a statement made by a man named Heman Humphrey. Now, Heman Humphrey was the president of Amherst College. And in the preface of John Harris's biography of Jesus, the great teacher, uh, Heman Humphrey conjectured as to what the work of a modern prophet might look like. I mean, he's just conjecturing. This is... He wrote it in 1835. Ellen White was eight years old. I mean, it, this was not in reference to Ellen White. He was just thinking, man, if God were to put a prophet on the, on the scene today, what would it look like? What would their work look like? Look what he says. Suppose, for example, an inspired prophet were now to appear in the church to add a supplement to the canonical books. What a babble of opinions would he find on almost every theological subject? And how highly probable it is that his ministry would consist or seem to consist in mere selection and ratification of such of these opinions as accorded with the mind of God. Something you need to know about Ellen White, and we know this from things she's borrowed, that there were authors she borrowed half a sentence from and then had to change the other sentence to make something that was false true. In other words, it wasn't just copy-paste. So even in the things she borrowed, if there was error in it, it wasn't in it anymore when she got it in her writings. And this is what Heman Humphrey's just conjecturing. You'd think that a prophet's work would consist in having to select the things that were true and leave out the other. And I believe Solomon did the same thing with the Proverbs. I'm assuming he's probably had to edit a few of those as well. Now he goes on, of absolute originality would seem to be almost impossible. 
The inventive mind of man has already bodied forth speculative opinions in almost every conceivable form, forestalling and robbing the future of its fair proportion of novelties and leaving little more even to a divine messenger than the office of taking some of these opinions and impressing them with the seal of heaven. Just interesting. Before, it is not in context of Ellen White, just conjecturing. What might it look like for a prophet if a prophet came on the scene? Well, we see that, part of that in Ellen White's writing. So what happened with all of, with all of this? this? This came to a head in the 1980s. Now, I told you on Sunday that it was in the 1980s through the Desmond Ford crisis and the allegations against Ellen White that my family left the Adventist church. That's one of the reasons we're out. She's a false prophet. It's a false movement. So the Adventists, I mean, there were entire churches that left. The entire congregations left Adventism in the Ford crisis. So the church knew they had issues on their hand. I've got articles. When I went, I came back into the church and I told you I began to research and investigate this. And I went to the library and I've got articles from Time Magazine and Newsweek Magazine and Christianity Day Magazine, articles by Ford, articles by Walter Ray, all these allegations and accusations. And I had to filter through those. And so this was a big issue. I mean, it's hitting Newsweek magazine. And, I mean, for living today, news is not the same as Newsweek magazine was in the 1980s. And Time magazine, both of them had articles on Ellen White's ministry, among other things. And so the Seventh-day Adventist church decided that they were going to settle this by hiring an outside law firm. With private funds, because critics would say, well, your church hired him and they just did what you told him to do. So Warren Johns, who was the chief legal counsel for the Seventh-day Adventist Church, hired a man by the name of Vincent Ramick. Ramick was the senior partner in his law firm. I think it was the Rammer, Diller, and White, W-I-G-H-T, not W-H-I-T-E, law firm. And they specialized in literary law. So it wasn't just like, oh, we're kind of, they wanted somebody who knew their stuff. And they basically went to Ramick and they said, this is what the critics say, this is what we say, here's her writings, pour through them, and tell us, you're honest, what is it going to be? Is she guilty of plagiarism? Could she be charged with it? Now, I've got a rather lengthy section I'm finishing with of an interview after the case, after uh, Ramick had finished the case, 10,000 case hours, he read through portions of many of Ellen White's works. The only book he read cover to cover was the book, The Great Controversy. And incidentally, he was Roman Catholic. Okay, so you put that in the mix. This is what his takeaway was. Can we go to the screen? I started out, I think, basically neutral on the literary charges. I became actually biased against her in the sense that I thought she was what some people, such as her later critic, latest critic Walter Ray, had alleged, guilty of plagiarism. It was reading her messages in her writings that changed my mind. And I think there's a distinction, a very salient difference here. I believe that the critics have missed the boat badly by focusing upon Mrs. White's writings instead of focusing upon the messages in Mrs. White's writings. And he goes on to explain, you know, the clauses and the phrases and how you, you know, all the structure of the... He said, 
it was the messages that made the difference for me as I was going through this material. Now he continues. Mrs. White moved me. In all candor, she moved me. I'm a Roman Catholic, but Catholic, Protestant, whatever, she moved me, and I think her writing should move anyone unless he is permanently biased and is unswayable. <laughs> what a this, is a, this guy is outside the church, and he's like, man, these writings are awesome. I, okay, he continues. Now notice, he explains himself. He says a person can, they asked him, now I'm leaving out in the interview, this is an interview, so the, the, the review, I left the review question out. But they said, so what, it, what was it in her writings, Mr. Ramick? What was it that, that moved you? What was it about her writings? He said, a good person can walk this earth doing good deeds and saying to himself, I'm a nice person. I'm sorry, a person can walk through this earth doing a good deeds and saying to himself, I'm a nice person. And after a time, you really come to believe that you are. But when was the last time that you really looked inside yourself and found out what you were really like? Now, there are a lot of things that Mrs. White has put down on paper that will, if read seriously, perhaps cause a person to look inwardly, honestly. And if you do the true self comes out. I think I know a little more today about the real Vince Ramick than I did before I started reading the message of Ellen White, not simply her writings. <laughs> so you're getting the gist of, he's talking about the personal, now the, brothers and sisters, I told you, this is what, all of this is laying the foundation, this is what we want to talk about in the next couple days. What is the role of those writings for us in our personal spiritual lives, to help us grow closer to Christ. That's what we're going to be talking about. But this is what Ramick found in reading her writings. He continues. I have been asked whether I thought Ellen White was inspired. Well, inspiration is a theological word, not a legal word. And I am more at home with legal words than I am with theological words. I don't know whether she was inspired in the theological sense. I do believe that she was highly motivated. And if it wasn't God who motivated her, then I don't know who it could have been. <laughs> I just love this guy. But I get that simply from her writings, he says. And now he continues for the critics. He says, I was not there when she wrote, and I suppose that few, few of the critics were either. Now, I personally could not be disturbed by the thought that God may have inspired her to select something from a certain book. There's a possibility. And he says, and if God inspired her to select something that was written better by someone else than she could have written it herself, so what? Actually, in the final analysis, now look what he says, I think it all comes down to a question of faith. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, let me just be plain with you here. If you are entertaining questions now, Regarding Ellen White, even with the, what we've said here this morning, you are going to entertain the same questions with the Bible. And if this trips you up here, it's going to trip you up on Scripture and you're going to give it up. Or you're going to adopt some higher criticism that just says it's a production of man. That's just how it's going to be. It is a matter of faith. Is God able, first and foremost, with the Bible to preserve the integrity of His Word? You've got to believe that. Or you've got nothing. Is God able to preserve the integrity of His prophet? Listen, I'm not we didn't go over the tests of a prophet, but we've tested the prophet. I've tested the prophet myself. We'll talk a little bit about it in the next couple days, but it comes down to a question of faith, Ramick says, continuing. He says, and for myself, I have no trouble in accepting what she wrote as a matter of faith. 
I personally have been moved, deeply moved, by those writings. I have been changed by them. I think I am a better man today because of them. And I wish the critics could discover that. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I've been changed by them. Which, I'm going to get into that tomorrow, sorry. Getting ahead. Now, this is interesting to me. He says, let's take Walter Ray. He reads Ellen White and says, I found a certain phrase here, a certain paragraph there, and it came from this predecessor. Well, that's not proof. That's assumption. And I think the first step in any accurate critique is to go back to the real original. It might be Virgil, Homer, or the Bible. Because how do you know it was original with the predecessor? How do you know he didn't get it from someone else who in turn got it from still an earlier someone else? Didn't Solomon say there's nothing new under the sun? He says the literary pirate does not care whether he gets caught. But the plagiarist worries that he will be found out. He's setting us up here. He says, to accuse Ellen White of plagiarizing Coney Bear and Halson's uncopyrighted Life of Paul is absurd if for no other reason than the fact that she publicly urged her readers, publicly urged her readers to get a copy and read it for themselves. Now this next statement is very interesting and we're coming to a close here. He says, Ellen White used the writings of others, but in the way she used them, she made them uniquely her own, ethically as well as legally. And I should have brought that up because they asked Ramick when they gave him the case, they said, we don't want you to just tell us whether or not she'd be guilty in her day according to literary law of her day. We want you to tell us from all that you study, was there anything she did that was unethical? Like, okay, I shouldn't be doing it, but I'll never get caught. So he says in his, his assessment here, in the way she used them, she made them uniquely her own, ethically as well as legally. And interestingly, she invariably improved that which she selected. It was better when she got to... Folks, that's not the case in plagiarism. It's not better when you get done with it. That's why you're you borrowing it. So the final question from the Adventist Review. Attorney Ramick, how would you sum up the legal case against Ellen White as far as charges of plagiarism piracy, and copyright infringement are concerned. Ramick's response, if I had to be involved in such a legal case, I would much rather appear as defense counsel than for the prosecution. There simply is no case. Now, I have read, saints, this was in the 1980s. I think it was 1980, 1981. I have read on recent anti-Ellen White websites and they say Ellen White's a plagiarist and the church has never answered this. We've answered it, yeah. Answered it a long time ago. I'm going to finish with a statement from the pen of Ellen White. You know, she was aware in her day, I mean the criticism, and I didn't share with you, the plagiarism. We, according to uh, Tim Poyer with the White Estate, in his chapter in that book, Understanding Ellen White, he says that we attribute the beginnings of the plagiarism charges to D.M. Canwright, but have evidence that they probably were before that. So, I mean, they just go way, way back when it comes to Ellen White. Ellen White was aware of this in her day, but I want you to notice what she says. Brethren and sisters, let not your souls be disturbed by the efforts of those who so earnestly seek to arouse distrust and suspicion of Sister White. 
These attacks have been repeated hundreds of times during the past 40 years, but my labors have not ceased. The voice of warning, reproof, and encouragement has not been silenced. The evil reports framed concerning me have injured those who circulated them, but they have not destroyed my work. Before some of these opposers had an existence, I was shown what would come and from what source. Many ask, why do you not contradict these reports? Why allow them to be circulated? The same question has been asked again and again for the last 40 years. Notice here is 1883. She says, my answer is, in the language of one of old, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. God has called me to reveal to others by pen and voice what he has revealed to me. In his strength, I must go forward in this solemn and important work, knowing that it is soon to bear the test of the judgment. While false accusers are doing what pleases themselves, I will seek only to please him who has given me my work. Christ is our leader, and if we follow him, we shall see his triumph and share his joy. Brothers and sisters, that's my desire for each one of us here. That's why I'm sharing what I am. I'm not wanting to talk disparagingly of other people and their views and whatever else, but I think that this under our understanding of this is a, is a spiritual life and death, eternity matter. And my desire for each one of us is that we be ready when Jesus comes. And I'm sure that's your desire too. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Father, I just... Father, I know you've spoken through clay today. And I, I pray that in spite of the weakness of my words and phrases and lack of ability, that the Spirit of God would impress upon each heart and mind here what we need to take away from this. Father, we know the coming of Jesus is at hand. We know that the tendency of our hearts is to delay and to procrastinate and even avoid spiritual decisions. And Father, I just plead with you that you'll soften our hearts and help us to be open to the counsel that you have for us in whichever way you choose to bring it. Help us to yield our wills to you today and every day that when we see Jesus coming in the clouds of heaven, we can say, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.